Thank you, Ken. Well, good morning again, church. It's good to be with you. Um, it's good to have an opportunity to open God's Word together. Uh, if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and, and open, uh, we'll start in Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll land in 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, we'll actually spend more time in 2 Corinthians, so that may be the place you want to go ahead and bookmark, but either way, just give you a heads up of where we're going. Uh, we are continuing this morning in the series, Worship Is... Um, allowing God to define for us what it means to truly worship Him. He's the object of our worship, so He gets to define what worship is, and then He tells us how He wants to be worshipped. And it turns out it's more than just singing. And uh, singing is a fabulous way to worship the Lord, whether you're rejoicing or you're grieving or you're asking um, or you're just declaring the goodness of God in some way. Singing is a fantastic way to worship, um, but worship is so much more than that. And so today we're going to be looking at the connection between our worship and our relationship with one another. Uh, the Matthew 5 passage that Ken read um, is more than just God's system for bringing offerings. There's really something significant embedded in this idea um, of when we bring our worship to God, yet have something that's not right with another believer, we're to go get that right first. And so really going to dig into that today, why that's important, what the connection is with between my relationship with you, your relationship with one another, and our worship of who God is. Um, so first of all, I want to start here with a couple of things. One, let's talk a little bit about our culture as a whole, the American culture, the Western culture, if you will. There are certain mindsets that we have here growing up in the United States or in a Western culture that aren't the same as other cultures around the world. For example, we are very binary, on or off, black or white, yes or no, it's this or that, and most of the rest of the world operates with a both and uh, mindset towards the world um, that it ha doesn't have to be either or it can be both and okay and so that's the culture in which the scriptures were written so sometimes things are confusing was it this or is it that so for example is it the sovereign will of the Lord or is it my desire to be with him which which one is it we need we need to know as western thinkers and another thing that we do really well in this culture somewhat to our demise is the compartmentalization of life like we do that really well here um, where I have my, my work face, my work bravado, my work facade, and this is what I look like and act like at work because of my position and my title and my influence and my need to get things done. But yet we don't, that doesn't work well at home, right? So when we come home, we have a different hat we need to put on, a different uh, persona we need to put on so that we can be whatever we need to be with our family. And then we have a different oftentimes persona in friendship. And then we come to church. And we put on our church clothes, our church smile, our church sayings. And so we compartmentalize life in that, in that way, which then when we begin to think about the things of God becomes a detriment. And when we compartmentalize things like worship and relationship with others. So we can, if we can put those in two different boxes, one cannot be okay and the other one can be okay. Uh, but from a biblical perspective, we're going to see that those things are actually connected. That, um, that the understanding of who God is and what God is calling us to is not all these different compartments. Be this in this compartment, but then be this in a different compartment. Um, the calling is the same regardless of what arena of life you're in. And so... Um, just reminding us, too, that we are created in need. Uh, Ken emphasized this um, earlier um, in communion, and it came up again with Daniel, this idea that we are in perpetual need of Christ. It's not a one-time event. It's not just a dot on the timeline of your life, and that need was met, and now you're good, just go on. Like, be becoming a Christian, being saved, 
putting your faith and trust in Jesus is actually an eternal relationship you're stepping into. A lifelong journey that will give way to an eternal experience of the goodness of Jesus where you see him face to face and experience him that way and your need for him doesn't go away. Whether we're talking about our need for the forgiveness of sins, our need for um, abundant life, our need for peace and joy in the midst of chaos and turmoil, like our need doesn't go away. And we talked about a couple of times in this series how we were actually created with need before the fall. God says, hey, this is Adam, but it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs to be in relationship with me, it's from God's perspective, and in relationship with another image bearer. And so God creates Eve, his counterpart, um, for him to relate to. And so it's not just that Adam needed Eve, he also needed God. Eve needed God, but they needed one another. So God says it's not good for man to be alone. And then right after the fall, this is like the primary thing that gets broken and distorted in the world that we live in, is now there's this brokenness between God and Adam, um, where Adam is feeling shame, he's overwhelmed with shame, and so he's hiding from God, him and Eve both. Uh, So we see shame, we see Adam and Eve blaming each other. Now we have the introduction of blame. And then if you move right to the next chapter, there are two boys, one gets envious of the other and murders him. We see hatred and we see um, envy uh, and murder enter into the human story and so of all the things that happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God it wasn't just that they broke one of God's rules and now he's mad and so he's going to punish them like everything changes so these inerrant needs that Adam and Eve had to be in relationship with God and with one another like that primary need gets broken so now there's a, a new need a new need for that relationship with God to be restored through Christ and the relationship with one another to be restored through Christ. So Matthew chapter 5, which is where we were just looking at with Ken reading verses 23 and 24. Let's look at this together. These are the words of Jesus. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar. So this is a series on worship This is a verse describing you bringing your worship to God. It's describing more of a formal setting of worship, like into the synagogue, into the temple, into the church. So you're you're coming into a place of worship and you're bringing your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, this is interesting because I think it could go both ways or that you have something against your brother, Um, but that's not what he says. If If you remember your brother has something against you, Whereas Matthew 18 is going to talk about that as well. If your brother has sinned against you, you go to them. And here in this passage, a similar instruction is given. Leave your gift. Leave your gift of worship there before the altar and then go. Go. Go and do what? First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So there's a clear connection here between us bringing a gift to God to the altar, a gift of worship of some sort, a clear connection between that and our relationship with one another such that God doesn't say, okay, as soon as you're done with your offering your gift, I mean, your first thing needs to be go take care of that. He says, before you offer your gift. It's really important to God that we go and be reconciled with one another. Then we come back and we offer our gift of worship. So we're going to come back to this passage at the end. In 2 Corinthians 13, the last verses of this letter written by Paul, he's writing a letter to the church. 
And let's just be honest, oftentimes when we read the beginning of a letter or an email or the ending, we kind of skip past that, right? Like, I hope all is well in your world. Like, when was the last time you read that at the beginning of an email and you stopped and went, huh, I wonder if all is well in my world, and he really hopes that all is well in my world, and like, no, we just blow right past that to the content. Why are you sending me this email? What do you need from me? What do you want? What's going on, right? And so oftentimes we'll treat like a, an introduction into a letter or even the ending of a letter as just kind of fluff, just the niceties of, of being nice to one another. But really in the end of this letter that Paul is writing, he doesn't land with just niceties. He actually lands with a few verses. And in these few verses, he ends with six commands he gives to the church. So it's not just fluff or, you know, Paul trying to be a good wordsmith and make sure he leaves them as some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling inside. He ends his letter very intentionally. So in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, the word finally, he's very, well, he's very aware, he's about to end the letter. So he's saying, finally, let me wrap this up. Brothers, this is the Greek word that uh, translated, translates brothers and sisters. So ladies, you're included in this. This is not just bros busting knuckles and you know, bumping chest. This is like the brethren, the church, the congregation, men and women. And here comes the first command, rejoice. Now, it's not as easy to see in English, but in the Greek language, when something's given as a command, it's conjugated a very specific way, and that's how this word is conjugated. It's an imperative command. So he said, finally, as I wrap this up, brothers and sisters, my first command is to rejoice. We see this command for worship. I said earlier, you know, rejoicing isn't the only way we worship, but it is definitely one way God desires to be worshiped to rejoice in who God is. He's good, he's kind, he's faithful. You can rejoice in that, you can worship him in that. You can worship him for what he has done for you. Take inventory, we talked about that in gratitude. Like the other, last week we talked about like just taking inventory on the goodness of God in your life. And if you're struggling to have a heart postured in worship, one of the most powerful things you can do is just stop and take inventory. Take inventory on what God has done. We can rejoice in that we can worship in that way this word means to hail to celebrate to to be full of joy towards so this is a command to worship so worship isn't just something that god says hey if you if you need to kind of express yourself here's a way you can express yourself it's like no this is what i it's what i'm commanding of my people you were created to do this I created you with a capacity to do something that the rocks can't do and the chairs can't do and the, the birds can't do. You can rejoice. You can, you can give glory to my name with words, with a really specific heart posture. And so the command is to worship and to rejoice. Now here's what's interesting, is now he's gonna give us five more commands and almost all five of them are going to be commands or directives dealing with our relationship with one another. So as he gives these parting instructions to the church, this call to worship, he's also giving a call, a set of commands that will impact our relationship with one another. Look at the first one. Aim for restoration. Now this word can translate restoration it can also translate perfection or maturity it's actually a bible word that's that's describing our spiritual growth that we all have a physical age some of us 
aren't aging as well as others. One of our um, staff members lovingly asked a few of us backstage how long had it been since we had hair. I know he meant well. I know he did. He was just curious. I had to stop and think about it. Gosh, it's been a, over a decade since I had hair. And, right? and so our bodies are aging physically, um, but we also have a spiritual maturity. We're actually described as infants when we first become Christians. Um, and we need the nourishment of milk like a newborn baby, that, that, that mentor in our life, that disciple maker in our life who's investing in us and helping us grow and mature in the faith. And what all of that is aimed at is this, this idea of perfection or maturity. So it's the idea of being restored when something has been ruptured, but it's also the idea of growing into maturity. And it's interesting, I think those two things in the Christian walk actually go hand in hand. That the more mature I come, become in the faith, Spiritually speaking, the more ready I am to see repair happening and the more ready I am to believe that it can happen because that's part of it, isn't it? I mean, you've had a, a rupture or a broken relationship. You're like, there's just no way that's gonna be repaired. And so if, if that's our posture, I don't believe this relationship can be repaired, then I am not likely gonna take a step of faith towards that repair, right? So as I go and mature in the faith, we say this among the elders, it's not that we become less and less needy of being repentant, it's actually that we become more and more repentant. We repent more frequently. We're more aware of the things that are broken inside of us. And so there's this growth and maturity that happens that's connected to our restoration towards one another. The, second command, the third command is to comfort one another. We'll spend a minute here. Comfort one another. This is a beautiful word. It means to like to call somebody to your side or to invite somebody to come so that you can encourage, comfort, or console. I just get an image of maybe my relationship with my sons um, when they're in a place of brokenheartedness or sadness, something I can't necessarily fix. But what I can do is I can, I can, I can invite them to come alongside me and be with me. I can put my arm around them. I can let them know that I'm with them in whatever they're going through. And I could even provide comfort in situations I can't fix or change. And I know the American way is to fix, right? That's what we want to do. My kid's crying. How do I fix it? I can't figure out why they're crying. I think they're hungry. I tried that. I think the diaper was wet. I tried that. And they're still not consolable. And we just want to fix it. But actually the call here is to comfort, to come alongside and be with somebody in their discomfort or in their suffering to console, comfort, and encourage. I think it's really important to keep in mind that in your relationship with the Lord, there's a comfort that only He can provide, um, a comfort that's bigger than what your spouse can provide, your best friend can provide, other church members can provide. That's true. There's a comfort that can only come from the Lord. The Beatitudes describe this comfort. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When you mourn and when you grieve with the Lord, it's this invitation of opening up your heart to be comforted by Him. And it doesn't necessarily mean He fixes the thing, right? It doesn't necessarily change it, but His presence, He comes, He invites you to come alongside Him, to put His arm around you and say, I'm gonna be with you in your discomfort and by doing so, bring you comfort. What's interesting though is, in this same letter, 2 Corinthians, the opening chapter, Paul describes that comfort from the Lord, but then he also points to the comfort we provide for one another. So it's, it's not just the comfort of the Lord. 
in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's writing this opening to this letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. There's this idea of comfort. He comes alongside us. He gives us his presence in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we, are, we share abundantly in comfort too. There will be abundance of sufferings that you will encounter in life multiple reasons for that primarily that you live in a fallen broken world but we're also told that when we fall and follow in the footsteps of Christ and the calling to be like him that we will encounter specific sufferings because of that and God doesn't always change the situation but he always gives his comfort and then out of this passage chapter one Paul is saying hey I want you to comfort one another with that same comfort you receive from God Have you experienced the nearness of God in a comforting way? Well, go give that to another image bearer. Go give that to another human being. Go give that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But God, I can't fix them. I know, I'm not calling you to go fix them. I'm calling you to be with them, to come come be next to them. So comfort one another is a command here. So we see this, this command to worship and to rejoice is followed by aim for restoration and comfort one another. We get this call now to unity. He says it just simply here, agree with one another. If I knew how to do that, I wouldn't need marriage counseling. I still have all my buddies from elementary school. Agree with one another. How in the world do you do that? This, this is actually an interesting word. The, the Greek word here, uh, hopefully this is helpful for you. It's, it's describing this idea of thoughtful planning and collaboration towards a consensus. It's the idea that you, you keep on giving consideration to something, serious consideration to something. So we'll just stop right there because it could also be translated to ponder or let my, one's mind dwell on something or to think about it or to fix your attention on something. So if we think about disagreeance, The idea isn't that we just agree to disagree and walk away, but that we would give thoughtful planning and this willingness to collaborate with one another. Not so that I can somehow convince you to agree with me, but that I acknowledge coming into this relationship with you that I don't necessarily have the truth and you don't have the truth. We're gonna find the truth together. We're gonna work towards it together. And so when we have brokenness in our relationships, it's not a line in the sand and I'm gonna stay over here until you're willing to come to my side and see things my way. That doesn't work in marriage, right? You know that. If you're about to get married, just know that doesn't work. It's No, it's the idea of like, no, actually, there's this willingness to come towards you. I want to see things the way you see it. I want to get better at hearing your voice and, and what's going on with you, but I would love for that to be reciprocated. If you would do that for, for me, I would just consider that really kind. And so we're going to work towards one another, thoughtful planning, giving attention to something, pondering, thinking about it, maybe Maybe I'm not seeing things the right way. Whoa. Earth-shattering, especially for those of us who are perfectionists who overthink everything. Most of the times in disagreements, when I just operate out of my kind of MO, 
I've already thought this through way more than you have, and, and everything you can throw at me, I've already thought it through and discounted it, disregarded it, filed it away, and I've moved on to something else. Anybody else treat other people that way besides me? I do that. That's not what's being described here by agree with one another. It's the idea that I'm going to hear what you're saying, and I'm going to give serious thought to it. My relationship with you is worth that. It's worth pondering and thinking about where we disagree, and, and, and there might be this, this time where I actually see things differently if I'll do this. You've experienced that before, right? You thought you were right, and you were fighting tooth and nail only to find out that you were actually wrong or a little off. Okay, so we know that can happen. What if we went into disagreement aware that that could happen with a sense of like, you know what, I'm gonna be aware. I'm gonna think about where I'm actually, I've done that before where I've been, thought I was right and I was wrong, so I don't wanna do that with you because I care about you, so I'm gonna really give thought. I'm gonna ponder on this so that I can be open to where I might be wrong too. In Philippians chapter two, verses one through five, um, Paul connects this mindset to our relationship with Christ. He said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, which is implied his love, any participation in the Spirit, so if you sense the Holy Spirit working in your life in some way, any affection and sympathy you've received from the Lord, and he says, hey, complete my joy, and then look at what he talks about, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's like, hey, if you've experienced these things from the Lord, then here's what, what I'm gonna encourage you to. Make my joy complete by now giving those things away to one another. What'll happen is that we will move towards one another. Verse three says this, that do nothing out of, or from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not a call to live a disinterested life. It's just like, hey, don't, like, your interests shouldn't be the only lens through which you look at the world. He's not saying, hey, go lay down all of your interests and just become this lifeless, neutral human being who lets everybody else get to decide what to do. But it's this idea of saying, no, why don't, what if you just took your interests and you, like, set them down for a minute and said, hey, what are you interested in? Where are you at? How could I be with you today? And then, and then here's the thing. Hopefully you'll reciprocate that. And if you do that, that would just be a gift to me for me to go, oh, well, here's what I'm interested in. And we begin to work towards one another and move towards one another. Verse five of that Philippians passage says, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This was, this was secured for you and me through the gospel. Like Jesus died on a cross. Can we all admit that was like a big deal and it was, horrific and brutal and this beautiful act of kindness towards us so that we might have the forgiveness of sins that we might be saved that we might have our relationship with God reconciled and he's saying oh yeah here's here's something else you have in the gospel you have this mindset towards one another this humble mindset that was also secured for you through the death of Jesus think about that Jesus died to restore my relationship with God and he died to restore my relationship with you to fix what was broken at the fall. And so this very simple phrase, agree with one another, is beautiful and it's theological and it's deep and it's hard, but it draws us toward one another, not away from one another. The next command he gives here is to live in peace. This is 
right after agree with one another, he commands us to live in peace. And then this comes with the promise, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Remember we talked about the God who comforts by coming to be with us. As God comes to be with you and he brings you peace, we're called then to give that peace towards one another. I wrestled with this one this week, and I think it was helpful to think about the opposite of peace, um, the idea of turmoil and chaos. We're really good at that, by the way. We're really good at that inside and outside the church. And so here he commands us to live in peace with one another. This is where it means to be free from rage and free from chaos. That's what this word means. Um, it's the idea of the absence of chaos and the absence of rage, but the presence of harmony, security, and safety. This word means both of those things. So it's the absence of one thing, but it's the presence of something else. So we have the absence of chaos and rage. We have the presence of security and safety and harmony. I read this command this way. Stop raging on one another and live at peace with one another and be a safe, secure place for one another. The idea of being safe is not that we don't have hard conversations and we don't talk through hard things and we don't avoid talking about sin and hurt and pain. Like We, we do those things. We're called to do those things. But the idea is that my relationship with you is never in jeopardy. So in my marriage, if, if my wife and I can be safe for one another, the relationship is never in jeopardy. We can work through some really hard stuff together. Even when we don't see eye to eye on the front end, maybe even on the back end sometimes, the relationship is never in jeopardy. And how amazing would it be if we could apply that to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Like to live at peace with one another in this way where the relationship is not ever in jeopardy even though we may have to work through some hard things. That in my relationship with you and your relationship with me, there would be the absence of chaos and rage but the presence of harmony, security, and safety. Again, I just translated this with, with my own words. This was the way I heard the command of the Lord, stop raging on one another and instead live at peace with one another and be a safe place for one another. And then this last command is really interesting and I don't fully know what to do with it, so I'm gonna work it out with you and then we'll, we'll decide together. How about that? Um, there's this command here in the passage. It says this, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, it almost just sounds like one of those extra phrases he threw in there, you know, to just make sure that it all sounded sweet and kind. I started digging into this, and I was like, this is actually a command to greet one another with a holy kiss. I was like, is this, does this show up anywhere else in the Bible? Is this like a one-off with Paul, and maybe it was like an inside joke he had with them, or they would know what he meant? And, and it's actually commanded five times in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss. Hey, don't, don't freak out on me yet. I don't know where we're going with this. Um, in the cultural context, it was the idea of embracing somebody like as in a hug and then a kiss on the cheek. In some cultures, it's both cheeks. And I think there's some cultures where it's like this cheek, that cheek, that cheek. But that's the idea. It's a non-romantic, appropriate expression of like physical affection for. So that's what he's talking about here. And he's commanding the church to like to do that. 
like five different places it shows up as a command and interesting enough there's a there's a situation in the gospel of Luke in Luke 7 where Jesus is in the house um, of um, Simon who was a religious leader if you guys remember this scene he's there with Simon and there's a woman of the city who was known as a sinner interpret as you will who kind of barges in on the scene and she comes to Jesus. He's here. He's at Simon's house. They're having this formal dinner and, and she falls to his feet and begins to clean his feet and kiss his feet. You guys remember that scene? Well, well here's a piece of that conversation. This is in Luke 44. Jesus, so Simon's irritated. He's like, who invited this woman? This is like messing up my dinner plans and so Jesus then in verse 44, turning toward the woman, so he looks at the woman, but he says to Simon, so here's Simon, maybe Simon's here, and here's the woman. He's talking to Simon, but he's looking at her. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. That's the holy kiss being described here. You gave me no outward expression of appropriate affection. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which you and I have already both know are many, are completely forgiven. For she loved much because, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It's this beautiful teaching moment of saying, this woman is expressing affection towards Jesus because she's been forgiven much and she's aware of what she's been forgiven. She loves much. He's not saying, hey, Simon, you don't have a lot to be forgiven for. What he's saying is, Simon, you're not aware of how much you need to be forgiven for. And I could tell how, because the way you're treating me. You didn't even give me a holy kiss. It's like saying, like in our culture, you didn't even give me a handshake and a hug when I showed up. And the first thing she did was, was come up to me and just give me a, an appropriate hug here. So I think there's some cultural translation here that has to be done. Um, I only know of two human beings um, who aren't like my spouse um, who give me a regular kiss on the cheek. Um, and one of them is, is a female and one's a male. And I never feel like it's inappropriate. Like I don't feel comfortable enough to do that. Maybe I will at some point till I give a hug and a kiss on the cheek. Um, but I just can say this on the receiving end, something about it just feels really kind. And, and so like as you work through this command, I think it's important to be aware of. Like you may have had experiences in life that just make you really uncomfortable with physical contact. I think that's okay. I think the Lord can understand, like can be with you in that. So this is not a command in a minute. We're all gonna stand up and kiss each other. Not at all. Here, here's how I'll, I'll, I'll interpret it for you is this, that there, there should be a sense of connection in our relationship with one another such that we have an appropriate expression of, of outward affection. I hope you have that in your marriage. Like if you've been gone for the day, you've been gone for a few hours or for a few weeks, well, like, like there's a way you and your spouse reconnect that's even physical, that doesn't have to be like romantic, like just a, just a hug, just an embrace. I hope you have that relationship with some friends in your life that like, it's just customary, we hug each other. I'll give you just something that maybe you can try out. Um, the next time you're with a friend or a brother or sister in Christ and, and, you, and you hug, don't try to over-hug them. Like, you know how when you handshake, you squeeze harder? 
Um, this is kind of a Texas thing. It's okay, but it's really hard to feel somebody's hand sh- like shake or squeeze when you're squeezing back super hard. Like wait and feel them hug you first. Just, just to know what, it, what is this what it feels like to be appropriately cared for physically the way I like to hug my kiddos when they don't have the strength to hug me back. Just feel the hug and then, and then, give, a, then give an appropriate hug back. If you're a side hugger, that's fine too. If you're a handshaker, that's fine too. If you're a fist bumper, I guess that works here. I don't know. You're going to have to work it out, but it's a command from the Lord, and it shows up more than once. That something about the way God designed us and created us, like it's not just a, it's not just a um, happenstance that every culture everywhere has some kind of expression of appropriate physical affection. Like God hardwired you for that to, like, to, to communicate something to you. Do, you know what I'm saying? Somebody like just gives you a hug and like, and you can just tell when they mean it. It's like, I don't feel anything inappropriate here, but I just really feel cared for. I feel like what we're doing here physically is what you want me to do spiritually with you, to come alongside you, to be near to you, and you're safe, and right? Like all those things we just talked about. So he ends with this command to greet one another with a holy kiss. If you need to interpret that handshake, fist bump, that's fine. Side hug, that's fine. If you, want to, if you want to go out on a limb and try the whole holy kiss thing, hey, give me a warning first, but welcome to try it. Yeah, I, I'm going to leave this for you to work out with the Lord, but I think this, this really important connection has been made here is he commands us to worship. He's also commanding us in relationship with one another to do it a certain way that these two things aren't two compartments in the spiritual journey. Your worship's over here and your relationship with others is over here. I want to look at verse 14 with you here in this 2 Corinthians passage. This is where he ends the letter. This is so helpful. I think this is going to show us so much. Verse 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you see that reference to a Trinitarian view of God? I don't think that's a mistake or an accident. I think the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to write this. As Paul instructs us on relationship with one another, he ends with a reference to the grace of the Son, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So it's going to take us back to Genesis chapter 1. Let us create man in our image. Now, we're not going to unpack the Trinity here with you. Um, One of our more experienced elders will do that with you later. Ken, you're up. But here's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Three persons in one. And what's so beautiful about that is we see really the, the DNA of real relationship. When you look at the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, you see this beautiful, eternally existing, loving relationship where they co-honor one another and they co-submit to one another. It's so beautiful. The Father honors the Son. The Son honors the Father. The Father honors the Spirit. The Spirit honors the Son. We've, we've walked through this before. Jesus, the Son, submitting to the Father. He submits to the Spirit. It's the Spirit that leads him out into the desert to be tempted. And so we see this beautiful not just an example of what relationships could be like I think we're seeing the fabric the DNA of the fabric of relationship here between the son the father 
and the Spirit. And this connection here at the end, he says the fellowship of the Spirit. That beautiful koinonia word. It's a description of this reconciled relationship we have with one another in the church, the koinonia, the fellowship. This idea that you and I have this common relational community with one another, this close mutual relationship one another, where our relationship with one another, think about this, is actually set apart from our relationships outside the church. It's something to think about. Are your closest human being relationships people who are in Christ, part of the Christian community? It does not mean you can't have relationships outside of that, just that these would be set apart in a way that's being described here. We'll end here, 1 John chapter 1, 3. That which you have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus. John's saying, I want you to have fellowship with us in the church. Out of this fellowship we have with God the Father and the Son. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Philippians 2.1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. That word participation is actually koinonia. It's the same Greek word. Fellowship with the Spirit. So the idea that we could compartmentalize our Christian journey and I can be okay and getting straight A's in one box while I may be getting like a B minus in another and I'm actually failing in this area of my Christian journey, but I'll get to that later. Let's really focus on my straight A compartment. Like that idea is just, it's just, it's bogus. It's not the way that God has called us to live. That I can't separate my relationship from God with my relationship with you. The fellowship I have with God will be reflected in the fellowship I have with you. We could keep going in passages that I've cut out this morning on this connection. So we go back to Matthew 5, maybe with a little more clear understanding of what Jesus was getting to. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There's a connection between your worship and your relationship with one another. I'll leave you with just one maybe illustration of this. If, if you get sideways with one of my boys, you may do that. It's okay. I don't expect you to always agree with my kids. But if you get sideways to a place where you have broken relationship with one of my sons and you want to come over to my house for dinner and you want to sit down at the table and pretend like nothing's wrong, like we're not going to get to do that. I'm going to say, hey, I need you first to go talk to my son and y'all need to work that out and then you can come and enjoy a meal with the father. And it's not a perfect parallel, but I think that helps me understand the heart of God here. He's saying, hey, you're my children. Don't come and pretend like everything's okay with me and sit at my table and eat while I know you have something against him, while I know you're broken in relationship with her. To have a relationship with me means to be part of this family and have a relationship with my kids, and so I'm gonna need you to go get that right. And then let's sit down and enjoy a meal together. 
So I just leave you with that illustration and we'll go into some questions for reflection. How is your worship, how is your worship, you personally, connected, connected to or affected by your relationships with other believers? As we work through this today, are you like sensing that and feeling like, oh yeah, that's, that feels familiar? The second question is this, is are you willing to come alongside and provide comfort to another believer who is experiencing suffering? Maybe you heard that command for the first time today. And you're like, I've just been leaving all their discomfort between them and God, and I didn't realize I had a part in that, that the way God has comforted me, he actually wants me to come alongside and comfort. As we're called to aim for restoration and spiritual maturity, is there evidence in your life that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus? Have you hit one of those proverbial walls or a ceiling and you're just like, man, I feel like I've plateaued in my relationship with Jesus? Um, could be a number of reasons for that, but I would say, hey, start where we're at today and just check your other relationships. See if maybe a broken relationship with somebody else is, being, is a hindrance right now to your relationship with the Father. What is your MO? What do you do when you disagree with another believer over important matters? Are you willing to hold loosely your perspective in order to find unity with another believer? Or are you a line in the sand person? It's my way or the highway. Are you willing to hold your perspective loosely in order to find unity? And then lastly, think about the way you, in, you interact with other believers. Do you bring peace or do you typically bring chaos to those relationships? And think about that. Like we've been commanded to live in peace with one another, to work towards unity, a mutual goal towards, right, growing and maturing in Christ and seeing him glorified in our lives. And when you and I get sideways and can't get over it, the first thing that happens is our worship goes out the door. I want to pray for us now. A um, couple things. If you're here today and like you'd like for somebody to pray with you, you may have heard this a hundred times. Uh, this may be the first time. We, uh, we have prayer partners available. They're the people who stand up at the front on the corners and kind of face this way. They're basically here ready to pray for you over anything going on. Um, if you want to talk to one of our elders, um, our elders will be available in the commons. They aren't all here every service, but there'll be a few of us out in the commons. Um, we'll have lanyards on so you can ask questions about the church. Uh, if you're here today and like you feel like God's calling you to take like a step in your faith, like to maybe become a Christian, uh, we want you to come grab us. Uh, maybe baptism, like you've seen all the baptisms over the last two months. You're like, hey, I think this is my time. Like this is what God's calling me to do. Um, will you come grab us as well? Grab one of our elders or pastors and we'll talk to you about um, setting up a time to talk about baptism. And so however the Lord's speaking to you today, whatever next step that is, I'm gonna pray right now that he'd give us the faith to take that step. Um, and let's, let's pray, and then our, our worship team is going to come back out. Father, thank you for this time. We declared from the beginning that it was ordained by you, uh, sacred, uh, when your saints gather together in your presence. Father, it is no small thing. And God, today, just you know, I hear uh, these six commands from the, the heart of a loving Father calling us to do what we were created to do, to worship and rejoice and to walk in true koinonia fellowship with one another. Father, thank you for what Jesus has done for us to reconcile our relationship with you 
and then also to reconcile our relationship with one another. And so, Father, today we just want to declare we believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus is enough. So, Father, now we're asking that your Holy Spirit would work in each of us, speak to each of us, and stir in each of us. Show us this this next step of faith that we can take. And, Father, for those maybe who are struggling even to believe, would you just give faith as a gift today? Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.